We are going to spend some time today talking about the nature of God, which probably sounds overly ambitious, and it is. Um, initially, that also may seem like it's going to be a pretty theoretical conversation, but, but the goal in this is not to get lost in our heads. The goal is not to get lost in esoteric thoughts, attempting to understand God, which is actually going to be a part of the point that we're hoping to, to get at today, that the fact that we can't adequately or completely understand God. That, that is simply beyond our ability. So our goal in this conversation is not to nail down the nature of God, but I do believe that exploring and growing in our understanding of God's nature, however imperfect that will always be, and it will always be imperfect, it is still a vital part of our spirituality. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because that then shapes every other aspect of our lives, every interaction we have, how we approach our vocation, etc. I think there's some truth in that. And if it is true, it is really important that we put in the time and effort that we do the work in attempting to think rightly about God. So how do we understand the nature of God? How do we even begin to understand the indescribable, understand the holy, the, the one who is completely other, the infinite one who is far above our limited minds? That sounds like a rather daunting task, and at least on some level, we have to begin with our human language, which puts us at an immediate disadvantage because human language is imperfect, and we're always just trying to keep up and never quite arriving, but we have to begin there. It helps us at least start that process. And so we find throughout our scriptures that the authors writing these various documents are employing various linguistic tools to help us understand the character and nature of our God. For instance, one linguistic tool that we often find in our scriptures is the use of metaphor. The authors of our scriptures repeatedly use metaphor to sort of give us a window into the nature and character of God. So we find these images, and those images help us begin to understand something that is eternal, someone who is infinite, and they, they give us a point of reference, something that we are familiar with in our human experience something we are familiar with in the natural world that can at least then, in part, be applied to God. So a very simple example, one that most of you will be familiar with, Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. So is God literally a shepherd? Well, no, he's not tending to sheep in a grassy pasture, but thinking of God as a shepherd helps us understand how we as his creation relates to God. Or when Jesus says, I am the vine, I am the vine. If you want to live, 
You need to stay connected to me. I am the vine. Is Jesus literally a vine producing various kinds of grapes? Of course not. Or we could think of some of the other I am statements from John's gospel. Is Jesus literally bread? You, you get the point. These metaphors are important in helping us begin to wrap our minds around the nature of God. So here's another example, and this is where we're heading this morning. Probably the most common metaphor used of God in our scriptures, we often think of God as our Father. God as our Father. We actually sang about that this morning in a couple of the songs we sang together. So again, is God our biological Father? Well, no. But that language helps us understand that God gives us life, that God protects us, that God provides for us. Our, our prayer service every week begins with these words, Father God, creator of heaven and earth, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Israel, God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, true and living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father God, creator of heaven and earth. God is depicted through, time and time again throughout our scriptures as the father of us all. Jesus Christ, the, the son of God, who is himself God incarnate, Jesus refers to God as father. So a part of thinking about God's nature is wrestling with some of the metaphors like God as our father, and in this case in particular, wrestling with some of the gendered language that is used to describe God. God as our father. It's one of the most common metaphors. This is how Jesus refers to God in prayer and in conversation with his disciples. But what about the idea of God as a maternal figure? This is probably going to be the most feminist sermon I've ever preached, so you might want to buckle up. I actually remember the first time that I was exposed to an emphasis on the maternal aspect of God, and initially I was a bit unfamiliar, and so it caught me off guard a little bit. What is the meaning of this feminist agenda? That is not the point that we're hoping to drive home today. That's not the point of the text we're going to read out of Isaiah, but but I do think it might be important that we attempt to disentangle ourselves from some of these presuppositions we may have in order to have a more holistic vision of what a text like this one in Isaiah teaches us about the God we serve. So again, as we've established already this morning, the most common metaphors in our scriptures used to talk about God were identified with male individuals in the ancient world. So we could think of a shepherd, or a warrior, or a lord. These were male individuals in the ancient world. And while those metaphors shed light on the nature of our God, they can, and they have at times, led to the misunderstanding that God is a man. And then maybe we would even take it a, a step further and think, well, then God is probably also a man in the ilk of 21st century masculinity. But theologically, we affirm God is neither male nor female, save the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate 
God in flesh. God is spirit. God is not literally male or female, but God is revealed in part through some of these metaphors. So it is completely permissible. It is appropriate to speak of God as father, to speak of God as warrior or shepherd. It is accurate to begin building an understanding of God in that way since God is revealed to us through some of these metaphors in our scriptures. But if we understand God only as Father, it's possible that the picture is incomplete. And our Bible actually provides a more well-rounded vision of God, using more inclusive metaphors to provide a more complete picture of God. So let's read today's text. Isaiah chapter 66, and then we are going to talk a little bit about this idea in more detail and think of why this might be an important conversation to have. So Isaiah chapter 66, before we read the passage itself, a little bit of context. This is the final chapter in the book of Isaiah, and while scholars vary greatly on when they date this portion of Isaiah. Some date it as late as 538 to 520 BC, which is a rather late date, but that would have been roughly 500 years before the time of Christ. This would have been following the return of Jews from exile back to Jerusalem. But regardless of where we date this material, I think the point is the same. If the material is used as a warning and words of comfort for people prior to captivity, or if it is comfort after they have returned from captivity, I think it's the same. And like many prophetic texts, this section, Isaiah chapter 66, is a mixture. There is a pronouncement of judgment, but there are also words of comfort. Which, by the way, I think that's a good general rule of thumb to keep in mind when we think of prophetic words in our day. A little bit of judgment, a little bit of beckoning into something different, something new, something that is more complete or more whole, but also a little bit of comfort, a little bit of encouragement. When you only have one or the other, I think it may fall short. This is the pattern that we find in the Hebrew prophets. So we first find judgment. Judgment for those who are attempting to please Yahweh by their constant sacrificial offerings, thinking this is how we please our God. If we provide these sacrificial offerings to God, then we can pretty much do what we want. We can live how we want because we have appeased our God with this sacrifice. But in reality, these were people who were apparently completely unconcerned with what Yahweh actually wanted from them. Yahweh wasn't all that interested in the sacrifice itself, but what the sacrifice was doing for the people in drawing their hearts to God. And we see this theme repeated throughout the Hebrew prophets as well. For example, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the word from Yahweh is this, For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So there is this message of rebuke in Isaiah 66, or a a call into something different. 
But that rebuke is then followed by words of encouragement, words of comfort, which lead us to our text today where Yahweh promises, through this series of metaphors, Yahweh promises the salvation that is coming to Judah. We pick it up in verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. We'll pause there before we continue. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Why? Well, Jerusalem was destroyed, laid to waste. Her inhabitants were forced to leave. So after exile, Jerusalem, in the popular imagination at least, represented what could have been. We had a glorious future awaiting for us, and this city was the epicenter of that hope for the future, but it is wasted. It represented what could have been, but what was more or less destroyed and hindered. But that destruction and that absolute calamity was not the end of her story. So the prophet says, rejoice with her. Rejoice. It is not the end of your story. What was demolished is going to be rebuilt. What seems impossible now is going to be made possible once again. Exiles will finally be able to return and restore what was lost. And it was much more than the buildings that had been destroyed that will one day be restored. It wasn't just the stones that make up those buildings that the prophet is speaking of, because more than brick and mortar per se, more than the materials that were used in these buildings, it was the people of God that would be rebuilt. This is the promise. God's plans are continuing to advance, so rejoice with Jerusalem. What seems devastating is being brought to an end, and there is a new beginning made possible for these people. Let's continue reading. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. So these first references that we find in this section refer to the comfort of a mother, the comfort of a mother. And that's what we're going to be exploring over the next few minutes. And that's great, the comfort of a mother here at the beginning of this passage. But again, this is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the nursing mother who is consoling the infant or the child, delighting the baby with the milk of a mother. It's one thing to use these maternal metaphors or images of Jerusalem, or even to use them for us as the church. The church actually has a rich tradition in this regard that we won't spend much time on today, but I do think it's worth mentioning at this point in the conversation. There are early baptism fonts that were Yonic in nature, or at the very least womb-like in structure, to give voice to the idea that 
Baptism is the means of new birth. Like when Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born of water and spirit. Baptism is the mark of this new birth. And so occasionally artists and architects in the early church designed aspects of the church building to reflect some of this feminine imagery. Anglican pastor Tish Harrison Warren notes that that simple design detail in the early church, while it obviously doesn't point to an early church that was free of misogyny, we we know that that's not the case, but it does reveal that ancients apparently were not only comfortable with feminine imagery, but even considered it sacred enough to actually fuse it with their very sacraments. And I don't think that's insignificant. But again, that's fine. That's fine to think of Jerusalem or or the church with these maternal metaphors. But maybe we're thinking it's an entirely different thing to think of God with these maternal images. Isaiah here says Jerusalem is the nursing mother. But then we continue in verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. With an understanding of the context of Isaiah 66 in mind, we understand that the people of Israel were in need of comfort. They were in need of comfort, spending decades upon decades in overwhelmingly difficult situations. Their city had been or would be besieged, depending on when you date this material, but many were killed, starved to death. Those who were not killed were taken into Babylonian captivity until King Cyrus allowed them to return and begin the process of rebuilding. But even after that process of rebuilding started, things didn't get easy. There was still great difficulty awaiting them, great difficulty emotionally and physically as they started this process of rebuilding. They were in need of comfort. And God promises to provide that comfort and to express his commitment to comforting the people, what do we find? The image of a mother. So it goes without saying that God is a father to us. This language is found throughout our scriptures. Jesus refers to God as father, etc., etc., but What might come as a bit of a surprise is this maternal dimension or this maternal depiction of God. The metaphor that is used to help the people understand the comforting nature of their God is that of a mother. I will comfort you just like a mother comforts a child. Now, obviously, this analogy can't be taken to the extreme, like any analogy or metaphor. God is not a biological mother to his people. 
Furthermore, if we take this image to the extreme, it creates problems because not everybody has a mother who is loving, nurturing, or, or comforting. Some have mothers who have been or are abusive. Some may not know their mothers. So it, it's the same problem we bump into when we speak of God as our father. Some have had really terrible Fathers, which can then taint our view of God when we use these metaphors to speak of God. But the point remains, the point I think that is being driven home here is that typically mothers are incredibly comforting. For many, there is no comfort like the one a mother can offer, maybe even into adulthood. I don't get it. I can't explain it, but I've experienced it personally. I've seen it, and I continue to see it with Nanette and our girls. And I think that's one reason this image is so important. Not that fathers aren't or shouldn't be comforting. I absolutely think fathers should be comforting. But for many, the comfort that a mother can offer feels like home, feels like safety and this is what the image or the metaphor is attempting to communicate. This is who God is for you. Are you in need of comfort? God comforts you, just like a mother comforts her child. In the second century, Clement of Alexandria used this metaphor to speak of the relationship of humans to God. He actually mixes the metaphor, but he describes Christians as nursing at the breast of God the Father. Think of the comforting effect that that act has had for our girls. It's indescribable. I, I don't even know how to put it into words, but this is how God comforts, like a mother comforts a child. And this place in Isaiah isn't the only place in our scriptures where we see this sort of thing. We actually see something similar from Jesus himself in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus is lamenting over the city of Jerusalem and pointing ahead to the destruction of Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say? Verse 34, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? How often would I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? God comforts, offers the comfort of a mother. Jesus longs to gather Jerusalem just like a hen. So again, this maternal imagery, just like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What about earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46? This is what we read in verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth. Born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. 
commenting on that verse in his commentary of Isaiah, John Calvin wrote this. I think this is fascinating. He said, God has manifested himself to be both father and mother so that we might be more aware of God's constant presence and willingness to assist us. The image, the the metaphor of God as father maybe isn't enough. Or maybe it gives us an incomplete picture when we only think of God as our father. We could even jump ahead a couple of chapters. Isaiah chapter 49, we find it again. Can a woman, this was our scripture reading today, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Again, commenting on that passage, Calvin in his commentary said, God did not satisfy himself with proposing the example of a father, but in order to express his very strong affection, he chose to liken himself to a mother and calls his people not merely children, but the fruit of the womb, towards which there is usually a warmer affection. Comforting arms of God. Comfort like a mother. The medieval German mystic Meister Eckhart described God's activity in this way. He said, what does God do all day long? God gives birth. This is what God does. God gives birth. From all eternity, God lies on a maternity bed giving birth. The point I'm hoping to raise in all of this through this text in Isaiah 66 and other texts sprinkled throughout specifically the book of Isaiah, is that to either consciously or unconsciously imbue God with either maleness or femaleness is to misunderstand God's nature. But we can actually seek a deeper understanding of God through both the maternal and the paternal metaphors. The the wide variety that we find in our Bible adds to, I think. I think it enhances our understanding of who God is and the comfort that God provides for his children. Okay, so what? Does any of this matter? I mean, does it really matter? If we are always just scratching at the surface when we attempt to think of God, does does it matter if our understanding of God is flawed? It always will be, right? I, I want to suggest that this conversation could be important on a couple of different levels. One primarily theological in nature, and then one that's a bit more practical and maybe ethical in nature. We'll start with the practical aspect. And to do so, I want to read something that theologian and philosopher Miroslav Volf argued. He said, If God, as the highest reality, can only appropriately be spoken of by means of masculine metaphor and reference, then we risk thinking that men alone are like God and thus superior to women. And conversely, if feminine metaphor and reference is similarly inappropriate for proper speech about God, then we risk thinking of women as unlike God and thus inferior to men. So I think the practical point of a conversation that seems pretty esoteric in nature is 
This, that the image of God in humans may be at stake. When we view God with only masculine metaphors, we may end up unconsciously equating maybe cultural masculinity with godliness. And that would be a mistake, I think, for obvious reasons. It can end up leading to misogyny, the subjugation of a particular gender, because if the masculine is godlike, then maybe it follows that the feminine is inferior. So I think the image of God could be at stake in this conversation. And so we want to constantly, repeatedly, do the hard work of affirming regardless of cultural assumptions, affirming that all of humanity is equal in the image of our creator imprinted in us. Finally, the theological point. I think a more holistic picture of God is at stake in this conversation as well. God is not limited to or defined entirely by our cultural vision of masculinity. And our scriptures give voice to this. Isaiah, speaking to this group of people who were in desperate need of comfort, facing a lot of difficulty, what is the encouraging word we find? You're in need of comfort. God will comfort you. God will comfort you. God's comfort is like a mother comforting her child. Are you in need of comfort? Fall into rest in the comforting arms of God, whose comfort is like a mother to you, your, his child. Fall into the comforting arms. And I think that message is appropriate for us today. Kevin, if you all want to come up.